Welcome to Always Authors, the literary podcast that features two authors in candid conversation. On this episode, Alka Joshi, award-winning author of the Jaipur series, The Henna Artist, The Secret Keeper of Jaipur, and the newly released The Perfumist of Paris, speaks with her writing mentor, Anita Amirzvani, author of the award-winning novels The Blood of Flowers and Equal of the Sun. You'll hear about their homelands, the history of perfume, and the importance of exemplary storytelling. Inspiration starts now. Hi, Anita. How are you? I'm fine. How are you, Elka? I'm good. Um, You know, one of the things that I always tell people is how I met you. And I met you because I read this fabulous book called The Blood of Flowers by Anita Amirazvani. And uh, I was so delighted to find out that you were teaching at uh, California College of Arts, which I had been thinking about enrolling in. So the master's program there um, had you front and center. And I thought, I have to make this woman my mentor. (laughs) And I did. And uh, I have always uh, appreciated that and been grateful to you for that. So that was what, maybe 15 years ago now? Do you remember the timing on it? I do. It was 2009. It's just embedded in my brain. (laughs) Right. And, you know, it's such a significant day today because today is the launch day of the third novel in your Jaipur trilogy, The Perfumist of Paris. So, you know, as your former teacher and now your, you know, your fellow writer, I'm so incredibly excited to be able to talk with you about it. So this being the launch day for The Perfumist of Paris, uh, I'm just really excited that we get to, um, to be together to talk about it and to talk about the amazing trajectory that your work has had. Um, and, and so I just want to take you back for a minute to cast your mind back, way back to when we first met and you were already thinking about The Hannah Artist. It didn't have the title yet, I don't think. And it certainly was in its infancy. Um, and, and so let's, let's talk about what your initial impulse and inspiration was for it. You know, I had started taking my mother to India uh, a couple of years prior to entering the MFA program. And as I did, my mother was taking me through her India, you know, her India of her girlhood and uh, her young motherhood and her young... Um, you know, marriage. And I think she was just telling me so many things that I'd never heard before. The saris that I'm not supposed to wear because they have mirrors on them. The bale fruit that she can't get in the United States, and that is her favorite fruit. And then she started telling me about uh, when she was 18 and she was in college and her father said, you've got to come home because we have found a young engineer for you to marry. And in 1955, India, that was a really big deal because finding an engineer was like having a doctor in the family. They were so excited. So my mother came home and she had three children in the first four years of her marriage. And then forevermore, she is not her own person. She is always looking after somebody else. She doesn't get to complete college. She doesn't get to have a career. 
And so I just thought, you know, I wish that I could give my mother the life that she has given me of complete independence and do whatever you want, Alka, you know, be with whomever you want, have whatever career you want. And um, so I just wanted to give her in fiction that life. And that is what inspired the character of Lakshmi. And then that became the henna artist. Did you know all of this consciously when you first started writing that book or was it more buried? How did it emerge for you? I think I always knew that Lakshmi uh, was a stand-in for my mother, that Lakshmi was going to do amazing things uh, because she had broken free of tradition. And um, I, I think I always knew that part of it was conscious. But the fact that she becomes a henna artist, the fact that Lakshmi becomes an herbal healer, and all of that thing that really appealed to people about the henna artist, that is something I could never have predicted, and it's not something that I did consciously. And I do recall, even way back when I was first reading your early drafts, how beautiful those sections were about henna and about the patterns and the meaning behind the patterns that uh, Lakshmi as your character, but also people in real life uh, developed because it really took us into the inner circle and the inner world of women. Yes, and so did your book. So I remember there was a scene in The Blood of Flowers that uh, had to do with henna. And the other thing about The Blood of Flowers that I think, um, you know, kind of also uh, is similar to the henna artist is this is this world of beauty that has nothing to do with the Western world. It's a it's a beauty of the the skin, uh, beauty of the kind of bathing traditions that we have in the East uh, and the Middle East. So um, I remember being really inspired by everything that you had done in your book. Your uh, book was taking place in I think 17th century Iran. And uh, I wanted to talk about the 1950s in India for a very particular reason, but uh, we have a lot of resonance in our two books. What was your inspiration for The Blood of Flowers? I think there were several. There, the, at the level of the individual characters and the uh, themes in the book, it was very much what you're describing for, for your first book also. So, um, so for me, the kind of specific inspiration was my father had bought a beautiful handmade Persian carpet for me when I was 14. And he had, uh, I had been in, I was in Iran at that time visiting with that side of the family because I had more or less grown up in the U.S. with my mom after my parents divorced. And so he took me to a small carpet shop and the carpet seller had put aside two carpets that he felt would be good for a teenager, you know, um, you know, durable, but still lovely and not too big. And so I chose between them. And I'm really glad I ended up choosing the less modern, the more classic one with the starburst pattern and the deep reds and indigos and uh, beautiful colors because, because although I bought it or I got it when I was very young, it ended up really being an inspiration for me for the blood of flowers. And specifically, I remember looking at it many years later and just thinking to myself, some woman made this carpet, most likely in a village, and I wonder who made it, you know? Um, and, and that really was the beginning of my inspiration for my, my main character, and also just this idea, which I think your book shares, especially the henna artist shares, 
that a lot of the craft work done by women is done by women and therefore not signed, not acknowledged, not, you know, highlighted the way, say, canvases are signed by artists and so on. So I really wanted to put that front and center. And one thing I love about your book is the way your first book certainly is the way it puts that women's art front and center. Yeah. Now that's the part that surprised me when I wrote The Henna Artist is that um, all of this feeling about women uh, uh, needing agency and wanting to have agency and how they get agency. I think that part surprised me. Um, I, 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 I was just writing about a, a life I wanted my mother to have, but I didn't realize that I was writing about a larger issue and a much more important issue uh, like that. Um, you know, I uh, I remember reading an article uh, about Agatha Christie at one time, and uh, they were asking her, where do you get your ideas? You know, you and I have just been talking about where we got our ideas and our inspiration. And she said, Marks and Spencer. And I just thought that was so funny because we are constantly being asked, where do you get your ideas? And I think a lot of our ideas come from our real life. They come from things that happen to us, people in our lives that we want to talk about. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I love that question, but I also never know how to answer that question because, you know, I feel like, oh, we just grabbed it off the shelf and we thought, you know, that would be fun to write about. <laughs> well, you're raising a really interesting point, I think, because often people who don't write fiction think it must be autobiographical. And yes. I know that your your books are not autobiographical, and yet they have, you know, they, they're inspired by what you just described, you know, a feeling about how you wish your mom's life could have gone or might have gone, right? So yeah. there's, there's a touch of that that, of course, I think is partly what makes your books so meaningful to readers now is because you incorporate those feelings and ideas, even though the stories are, are made up. You know, Anita, after The Henna Artist, um, I wrote The Secret Keeper of Jaipur, and it's exactly what you're saying. I wanted to know more about these tribal people that I remember we used to see when we went vacationing up in the Himalayas. Uh, so when my family still lived in India in the hot Rajasthani summers, we would go up north, uh, as a lot of people do. And I remember watching these people. They were dressed differently from everybody. They had silver jewelry. Um, they had like these uh, headgear. Uh, they were just so uh, intriguing to me visually. And I wanted to find out more about them. And that is uh, why I wrote The Secret Keeper of Jaipur, because I had a chance to do all the research about them. And I found out that they were nomads. That's why they didn't talk to anybody. They had different you know, dialects. They uh, you know, didn't really mix with the locals. They were just passing through. That's basically what they were doing. They were selling their wool and their, um, you know, milk and cheese and whatever else that they made. And then in the third book, I just really, uh, The Perfumist of Paris, which is coming out today, I really just wanted to talk about perfume. Perfume has always intimidated me. I, <laughs> I don't know if it intimidates you, but it intimidates, like, if I, uh, you know, run in a room and I, you know, smell perfume uh, and there are women there and I think, you know, one of them must be wearing this really heavy perfume uh, or strong perfume, I think, oh my gosh, you know, I... Uh, I, I am, I, it's kind of, it's like, I'm scared of it. I will run back out of the room. And so I wanted to explore what is this mystery of perfume? So that is where the inspiration for the third book came along, The Perfumist of Paris. I don't have any members of my family who are 
you know, perfume people or know anything about perfume. But I have to learn about it. So I write a whole book about it. You know, uh, I found myself learning a lot about perfume after reading your book, and I became increasingly intrigued by perfume. I actually don't really wear it myself, so maybe I'm in the same boat as you are, but I found myself fascinated by perfume, by aromas, and after reading The Perfumist of Paris, I remember I was walking around my apartment smelling things. You know, I had hyacinth and I was just like, oh, the aroma. You know, I've been missing things in my life by not engaging and indulging in the joy of scent. And so it really opened up this beautiful new uh, sense for me in my life. And maybe I could just jump in and ask you some questions about that. Um, yeah, sure. I'm, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, so, I'm so glad that it, it kind of opened that world up for you because I'm doing the same thing now. Everywhere mm. in my house, I go, oh, what does that smell like? <laughs> right, right. You know, it's um, maybe this goes back to what you were saying earlier, but something about uh, just appreciating and letting yourself indulge in and enjoy uh, the scents that are around us is something that it's very easy for me to forget how to do in, in my busy life of running around, you know, hamster on a wheel, etc. So I, I really love that throughout the book, you situate me in various moments of, you know, for instance, smelling flowers or smelling perfumes themselves or essences that get combined into perfumes and so on. Um, and I could feel the depth of the research in the book. And so I really want to ask you about that. How did you do the research? Oh, my goodness. Well, first, I had to go to New York City, uh, where I met with uh, a master perfumer, uh, a woman who was extremely, um, you know, expert. She had uh, helped create J'adore, uh, CK1, Eternity. I mean, these are, you know, major perfumes. And uh, she introduced me to the whole world of um, these large companies that now formulate uh, most of the flavors and fragrances that you and I are familiar with in our detergents, in our homes, in our uh, fragrances that we wear on our bodies. And then those people in, uh, in this large organization called IFF, International Flavors and Fragrances, introduced me to people in Paris. So I had to fly to Paris and I had to talk to the master perfumers there. And um, I, know, I know it sounds like I was just sort of going to see the Eiffel Tower and eating croissants, but I was actually there <laughs> to interview all these people. Um, and they introduced me to people in Grasse in the southeastern part of France, which was known as a perfume capital of the world for so long. So I went down there and I visited some formularies and some bottling plants and an atelier, like a creative atelier where these master perfumers are invited uh, to develop anything they want. It's not a client project. It's anything they want. And it's just to... Um, sort of reinvigorate their creative senses. Um, these people, these master perfumers, are the happiest people I've ever met. I mean, all day long, they are just working with scents. All day long, they get to uh, develop a scent or they're creating something out of nothing, um, and they are trying to invoke our emotions. That is the biggest thing that I think I found after talking to all these perfumers. I also went to Lisbon to talk to a couple of perfumers. And 
I think that they do so much to bring out emotions in us that I think are lost inside. It may be uh, a memory of something when we were five years old that gave us a lot of pleasure. Um, it may be a memory of something that, uh, you know, incited our love for someone. Uh, so there's a lot of that that goes on. And you remember, okay, in The Perfumist of Paris, Radha, the main character, she finds a uh, an ingredient in India that reminds her of going out in the rain uh, and uh, smelling the air. Uh, and it takes her all the way back to childhood and this hut that she lived in with her parents. So those are the kinds of things that perfumers are able to uh, uh, you know, recall in us, which I thought was really interesting. But yeah, I traveled all over to uh, get the essence of this. Um, so that's part of my process. I have to actually go to these places in order to understand them. Do you have a process also that you uh, that you follow uh, with every book, or do you, you know, just uh, wing it? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was lucky with the first book because I was able to go back to Iran. Uh, I made three separate visits to the country to visit my dad and stepmom and other family members. And while I was there, I did a lot of research unbeknownst to them because I was not admitting that I was working on my first novel for a long time, um, <laughs> partly because I just wasn't sure I could pull it off, <laughs> you know. So, right. Um, yeah. Right. And, did that and, happen and to you? Well, Anita, the other thing is you don't want to admit that you're doing something, that if you fail, people are going to keep asking you, hey, whatever happened to that novel? And then you'd have to say, well, you know, it didn't go anywhere or I couldn't sell it or, you know, nobody wants to say that. So, yes, I think with our first novels, we're all very protective of, of ourselves and like, oh, no, I'm not working on anything special. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, it took me nine years from uh, outset to publication for The Blood of Flowers. So it was a long journey. And now that I've, I've had many students, I've realized that it's not uncommon because there are so many skills you have to learn as a novel writer. And you really have to get most of them under your belt. So, you know, you need to learn about plot and character and setting and dialogue. And if you don't have a lot of those well mastered, then it's hard to make the book fly. There are always exceptions, obviously, but um, but you know that's just part of the process, I think. Oh yeah, um, I you know people ask me why did the henna artist take you twelve years from inception to publication? <laughs> <laughs> I beat you to it, uh, um, uh, or rather, I should say you beat me to it, uh, but. Uh, why did it take you 12 years to do the first book and only two years uh, to do the second book and the third book? And I think it's because you learn what not to do. And uh, so when I'm writing the second book, I'm not even uh, conscious of the fact that I've learned so many things not to do. You know, I know that you have to maintain tension throughout a 300, 400 page novel. You can't just drop off on chapter five and six and seven. Um, I know that you have to keep developing your characters so that somehow they are different. Uh, they have evolved from the beginning to the end. So these are all just, you know, things that are conscious in my mind now that I didn't even realize um, I had learned from the first novel. And now I just do it as a natural part of the process of writing a novel, right? You're in an interesting position as a writer of a trilogy because you've been able to devote essentially one book to each of the three 
characters that you established in the first book, and since two of them were quite young, Radha and Malik, we get to see them from as children, basically, and making their mistakes, especially Radha. And then we get to see them become adults and see the challenges they face and the professions they choose. So that's a really interesting thing, I think, about the fact that you ended up writing a trilogy. But did you expect to do that? Not at all. No, I think it was completely organic. And, um, you know, I think we both know that when we've been living with characters for a really long time, for over a decade, you really get to know who they are and you understand their needs and wants and motivations for doing things and you understand how they're going to react uh, in certain situations. So what happened with, uh, after the first book, the henna artist went off to the printers and then Malik, one of the characters from the henna artist said, well, what about me? You have all of these scenes that got cut out of the first book. And I really think that you could write an entire novel about me. And um, for some reason, when he was talking to me in my head, he was already 20 years old. And so that's where uh, I started. So I thought, okay, I got to advance the story 12 more years after the henna artist. So that's why The Secret Keeper of Jaipur is taking place in 1969. And Malik is already 20. And then I thought, you know what I want to know as an author is how he has changed from the first book. Is he still the loyal um, guy that you can depend on? Or has he changed somehow? because now he is richer. He is in a different socioeconomic group than he used to be uh, in The Henna Artist. Uh, so that was interesting for me to find out. And frankly, uh, my process is, and I think you and I have talked about this, is that I just go from one scene to another. That's how it evolves. I don't even know what's going to happen in the middle of the book, in the end of the book, until I just get there. So I didn't know whether he was still the same as uh, the eight-year-old boy in The Henna Artist until I got to the very end. And I just thought, that is, that's like a gift that we have of being novelists. We are also uh, going along with the story the way a reader is going to be going along with it as they're reading. Don't you find that? I do. I think my process is a little different from yours because what I end up doing is I write for 100 or 150 pages and then I think, what am I trying to do here? <laughs> and then I think you actually came and visited me uh, in Berkeley once when I had a big old cork board up. And this was when yes. I was writing my second novel, Equal of the Sun. And, uh, and I had started out with a single color of note card for each chapter. So chapter one was all yellow or something. Chapter two was all blue. And then by the end of the process, when the novel was done, all the colors were mixed up because I'd moved around so many scenes. So what I find oh. is a, a, some combination of planning and then just a huge amount of revision is what happens for me in terms of plotting, plotting my books. Do you revise yes, a lot? Yes, I remember. Um, I do. I revise tons. Uh, the Hannah Artist took me 20, no, 30 revisions. Uh, the subsequent books have taken me about 12 revisions. So, yeah, there's a lot of revising that goes on. And I think before I start the next portion of whatever it is I'm writing uh, in my book, um, I read whatever I have written before. And I try not to edit what, what has already been written, but I, I, yeah, I can't help it. So I, I edit that as I go along and then I write a new scene. So that happens all the time. Oh, and um, 
you know, to answer your last question also, uh, the perfumist of Paris also then evolved um, because I wanted to uh, write about Radha. Um, you know, I'd already written about Lakshmi, already written about um, Malik, and I, now I wanted to write about Radha because she wasn't in book number two. And I thought, I know those readers are going to ask me, whatever happened to her, you just dropped her off the planet. So then I started uh, writing about Radha in The Perfumist of Paris. And once again, I wanted to know what the adult Radha, how she had turned out uh, differently from the obstreperous, uh, you know, uh, non-rule, uh, abiding girl that she used to be, uh, that really surly teenager. Um, so I wanted to know what that was all about. But I do remember, okay, so I remember coming to your office and I remember being so intimidated by all of those colorful index cards that you had up on your board <laughs> because, I, uh, you know, I was just learning to write a novel and I thought, oh my gosh, is that what I'm expected to do too? I don't know that I can, you know, I don't know that I can be this organized. I don't even know where my story's going in here. Anita knows exactly where it's going. Um, and then I thought it was funny how the next time I saw you, yes, the colorful cards had all been rearranged. And I thought, oh, okay. So she's just, she's just revising now. I get it. We all do that. Yes. And I think, I think what we've both learned from our own experience and, and experience of seeing how others work is that everyone's process is different and that it's fine. You can work in any way you want to work. It, what matters is, is the end result. And um, it's fascinating to me as a teacher to see all the different ways that's, that people do work because you can be successful in so many different ways in terms of your process. You mentioned um, you mentioned following Radha uh, into adulthood in the Perfumist of Paris, and that reminded me of another question I wanted to ask you. We were kind of mentioned it a bit, but to, just to get back to it for a second, you talked glowingly about those wonderful experiences you had researching perfume. But I'm wondering why you decided you wanted Radha to be a perfumist uh, from the get-go. Well, a couple of different reasons. Um, one is, it just came to me. <laughs> one is, you know, all of a sudden now that this character is in the fragrance industry, and I don't really know why, but okay, so that's number one. Another is that there's all this mystery around perfume, you know, um, does it really uh, entice lovemaking? Uh, does it really create uh, you know, a whole mood in a room? Does it uh, really, um, you know, uh, bring forth a memory that we are uh, pleased with or not pleased with? So I wanted to sort of unpack that mystery. What's that mystery all about? Um, I think that um, I think that that is probably a, a lot of it. Uh, and because it had intimidated me so much, <laughs> I just wanted to um, get it to stop uh, be, I, I just wanted to not be so fearful of it, of perfume. Isn't that weird? I was fearful of perfume. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, some of the most beautiful and evocative scenes in The Perfumist of Paris actually take place in India when Radha has gone there to do, for various reasons, but they include investigating scent. Um, so uh, so why, why was it important to you to set some of those scenes in India? 
You know, um, in all of my books, and especially in The Perfumist of Paris, what I'm trying to say is that um, a lot of the beauty and cultural uh, references in this world, uh, and even uh, some of the innovations of this world, have their genesis in India. And so does perfume. There were so many ingredients it, that go into perfume, even today, although the products are oftentimes synthesized, um, they, uh, they go, uh, uh, you know, they started in India, and I want the world to know that the Indian subcontinent contributed to so much of the fragrances that they consume or the, in, in food or, uh, you know, have around their house or on their bodies. Um, in each of my books, I want the world to acknowledge and gain an appreciation for what India has brought to them. And I think this is a very personal thing, right? Because when we first came here, uh, the only things that I ever heard from people who uh, were you know, familiar uh, with us and kept, you know, asking where we were from, and I would say India, and they would say, oh, yeah, you, you have a lot of poor people there, uh, it's a hot country, it's a dirty country, it's, um, it's underdeveloped, it's a third world country, and I think hearing that over and over made me really confused, first of all, because I came from there and it didn't seem like that to me, and then secondly, uh, I think it it made me ashamed because I thought, oh, this is the way the world perceives my birth country. And now, in my 60s, as I write, I have a voice and I get to use that voice in fiction to say, hey, look at all of the amazing contributions that India has made to your life and, uh, you know, to your comfort. And I think part of that is, um, you know, are all the ingredients that went into perfume. So thanks for asking that question. I forgot that that was one of the main reasons that I wanted to write The Perfumist of Paris. Isn't it amazing how our backgrounds um, really help shape our books? Because our books aren't just about the story that we're writing with the characters that we're writing about. They're really about something deeper within us that we need to get out. Do you ever feel that way? Very much so. I'm glad you share that story uh, about yourself as a young person because I hadn't heard it before. And I have a kind of similar story, which is almost the inverse of what you're talking about. Because when I was a teenager and I was going to Iran to visit that Iranian side of my family, there were something like 50,000 Americans working in Iran or studying or traveling in Iran. And so there was a lot of connection between the U.S. and in Iran and a lot of appreciation that went both ways. Um, then the Islamic Revolution happened, the hostage crisis happened, and uh, you know there are a lot of historical reasons for Iran's anger with the U.S., which we, we, we can't get into here right now. But you know it's a complicated history. Um, but unfortunately, what happened after that um, is, you know, this political standoff that's gone on between the two countries for about 40 years now and has been, you know, really tragic from, I think, many points of view, including just my own experience. So that all happened when I was um, I was a teenager. I wasn't even 20 yet when all these things were happening. Um, but I think it was very formative in terms of what I would eventually write about um, and even though I wasn't writing about those events per se, I felt very strongly about trying to present 
a view of Iran that would be um, that that would look at it in all of its complexity, the beauty of the carpets, um, as well as the sexism of the period I was writing about, you know, and the classism of the period I was writing about. So I wanted to really grapple with the with some of the issues that I saw, uh, but also uh, but also what turned out is I had the opportunity to really talk about Iran with people who read my books and who were interested in being engaged in a conversation about it uh, instead of just the, the old, you know, uh, the old political stuff that was going on that was so negative in both directions, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the great things about historical fiction is that it can open up conversations like that uh, among people who might, you know, who might never really be interested in reading about the actual history of a place but are willing to read a novel about it. Have you had those kinds of conversations yourself? Absolutely. I think what's so amazing is that readers will write and say, well, I've never been to India, but now I want to go. Uh, this is a place that I never even dreamed of going, but you've made it uh, sound so intriguing and it sounds complex. It sounds like uh, the India I had never heard about before. And you know, I think that there is nothing sweeter than having a reader say that to you because then you kind of feel like I changed one person's mind today uh, or I changed a hundred people's minds today about what my birth country is all about. So yeah, I just, uh, I, you know, that's like one of the advantages of, as you said, historical fiction that, um, that I, that I had never thought about before I started writing it, uh, that you actually get to correct people's perceptions uh, of something that you feel very strongly about. Exactly. And in the case of Iran, because basically Americans haven't been going there for the past 40 years, it's, mm-hmm. it's very easy to stereotype uh, in both directions, of course, uh, because there's no more lived experience of the country the way there used to be in the 70s. And I think that's really tragic for any any two nations that are involved in standoffs like that is that the people don't get to know each other. You know, my mom would have never met my dad if times had been later or much later because it just wouldn't have been possible. And and those human connections, I think, are what are what are so meaningful and also what allow people to open their hearts to other people, other places, other customs and to have a wider and uh, more loving view of the world. Yeah, um, I think that I think that both you and I we're just trying to say, look, um, these people who live in these other countries—they're just like you. They are concerned about raising families. They're concerned about making enough money so that they can feed uh, their families. Um, they like to have fun. They like to uh, sing and dance, and you know, have a, a good time. So. Don't look at them as the other because they are just like you. And I think part of what I'm trying to say also uh, in my books is, look, you know, Indians are just like you. They're not some person, you know, they're not people so far removed that you cannot relate to them. Uh, And uh, yeah, I I think that I feel the same way when I read your books. Uh, And I feel like, you know, Iran is that much closer to me and the people are that much closer to me once I once I read uh, about them. Uh, have, have any of the readers surprised you with the kind of, um, you know, comments that they have made? I don't know if you've heard the expression, the book reads you. 
as opposed to you read the book. (laughs) I think it's such a lovely expression because that's really what I found. So as an author, I have certain ideas that I want to convey. I'm sure you do as well. uh, And that I hope will come through. But then readers, when readers read your book, the book reads them. And they come, they have come to me with their own concerns and interpretations that have been just often delightful and much different than anything I would have expected. So one that I just loved, I was on tour in New Zealand and, um, and I gave a reading and a, a much older lady came up to me. And so this was about the blood of flowers, which has sex scenes in it. And there are, you know, hopefully these hot scenes of, of young love, right? And so she just, she just bent down. She, she bent her whole body down so she was close to my ear. And she whispered in my ear, thank you for letting me remember what that was like. <laughs> uh, you know, and I just thought, oh, that was not something I would have ever expected. But it evoked memories in her that were very meaningful to her. Right. So so that was that was delightful to me. And um, and it made me realize how whatever my attention is, readers are going to read the way they're going to read from their own lives. And and that's what we all do at some level. Yeah, Um, (laughs) that reminds me of the sex scene Um, in the henna artist. There is a sex scene. And uh, the main character, Lakshmi, finally succumbs to uh, a man who has always flirted with her and he's wealthy, but he's married to her biggest patron. So she has always avoided him. And then finally, um, she uh, agrees and uh, they have this uh, afternoon of passion, night of passion. Um, And it's funny that Reader is really react to that. Some of them say, bravo, finally. And others say, no, you know what? She shouldn't have done that. And there are entire discussions centered around whether or not she should have done that as if she's a real person and really took this plunge. Um, so I, that I think has surprised me about readers that they um, react to these characters as if they were real people. And frankly, that's kind of how I think of them too. I think of them as real people in my life. And, um, you know, I think in all three of the Japur trilogy, the books in that trilogy, I do think of these people as real. And uh, for me, it's been fun to see them grow up and, you know, um, start doing different kinds of things uh, and um, change their personalities um, and I know that uh, with the perfumist of Paris, I'm going to get a lot of comments about why Radha did this or why she did that. And there, people are just going to be very wedded to whatever it is they think she should have done. I love that. Um, did you have uh, one of the things I don't know very much about you is what you were doing before you became a novelist. And I wanted to know, first of all, what that was and how it impacted your writing. That's an interesting question, I think, for all of us. So for me, all of my uh, career previous to writing those novels was in some form of writing or editing, pretty much. So I was an editor for 10 years, then I was a journalist for 10 years, and I uh, I wrote about the arts, and I was a dance critic. So I had a job that no longer really exists as a full-time paid job, except for maybe one person at the New York Times or two, something like that. 
and and what was great about those jobs is not only did they teach me how to write and edit on deadline, but in the in the second group of jobs when I was uh, working as a journalist, because I was writing about art all the time, I got to think a lot about artistic expression. And not only how to write about it, but also to think about what, say, choreographers were doing, how they were trying to convey their message in a wordless format, mostly wordless format, right? Um, so, so I think any kind of writing is really good training for being a novelist, uh, and any kind of thinking about art is also really good training. Um, I know you yourself had have had a long and successful career in a really different field. So how? How did that impact or influence your work as a writer? I worked in the fields of advertising and marketing for over 30 years. And um, I didn't even think about how they were helping me uh, with this new career of a full-time author. But as I thought about it, I thought, oh, you know, I spent all of those years writing mini stories, tiny little stories that lasted half a minute or a whole minute and these were tv commercials they were radio commercials and in that tiny span of time i had a plot i had characters i had dialogue i mean what better training could there be so in a, a so i was creating tiny little stories and all i had to do when i got into novel writing is expand those out into much uh, many more scenes and then have a conclusion at the end that wasn't trying to sell a product or a service, but was actually um, coming to a natural conclusion about what these characters were doing. So that's number one. I learned a lot about uh, writing stories from the advertising world. Another thing that I learned is, as you were saying about editorial work, deadlines. I meet my deadlines uh, when it comes to publishing. Uh, you know, the editor says, I need this in a couple of days. I send back the edits in a couple of days. They say, will you please do this interview for the German publisher? I, you know, I record it. I send it back to them uh, on deadline. And I think it's so important for authors to uh, work with their publishing team so that it feels like a team, so that whatever they're doing for you, you are also doing for them. Uh, and so I think that's the second thing is how to work with a whole team of people uh, was something I learned. The third thing that I think I learned is co-marketing. <laughs> and this has become really important with the perfumist of Paris. I thought, wow, I'm writing about perfume. How about I contact one of those people that I did the research work with? and see if they might want to collaborate with me on the launch of this book. And sure enough, uh, Lila Nur, which is a brand, uh, it's a niche brand out of India, uh, but they have French master perfumers who have uh, you know, designed seven cents for them, uh, are helping me launch the Perfumist of Paris. So they are giving out these free discovery sets uh, with every book that's bought. Uh, of course, it's a limited number. It's not thousands and thousands of them. But um, can I just show you for a second, Anita? Um, yes. It's this, it's this beautiful pink cover for their discovery set that goes along with the pink cover of uh, The Perfumist of Paris. Um, and I just couldn't be more pleased. Um, I think in a couple of weeks, I'll be going to New York 
they're doing a um, sort of an introduction launch at Bergdorf's. And, uh, you know, I mean, who, who knew that this could work out? But because of my advertising background, I thought, why not just ask? We do co-marketing all the time in advertising. We could also do it with books. Why not? So, so are those fun. samples of perfume within that beautiful package? Yes, there are seven little vials, and they are um, the scents that I talk about in the book. So um, there's a tuberose, there's a vetiver, uh, that's made out of the root of a grass. Um, and then there is a rose, of course. Uh, gulab is the word for rose in India, and that one is called gul rouge uh, in French. Um, and uh, of course, there is a uh, jasmine, you know, you have to have jasmine, the kind of jasmine that my mother wore in her hair, uh, you know, is also used in perfume. And there is um, another little vial that just uses spices. Uh, I don't think people realize that cloves and cardamom and cinnamon and peppers, pink pepper, are used in uh, perfumes. Um, so it, it's just, it's a, it's a melange of many different uh, uh, ingredients from India, and they are uh, used in these fabulous perfumes that I feel very um, close to because they remind me of India. They remind me of the scents of India, which is exactly what the Perfumers of Paris is meant to do for readers. I had something, well, not quite similar, but fun happen along those lines in which my Croatian publisher published my book in a beautiful package that included coffee. And so the idea was make yourself a cup of coffee and read this book. And I, ha I had nothing to do with it. It was their idea. But it was just kind of fun to see the different ways that they think about getting books out there to readers. Well, I remember reading um, books uh, that take place in Iran, and apparently your coffee, or maybe it's tea, uh, doesn't have sugar in it, but then you will take some golden raisins right before you drink so that it, it adds a sweetness on your tongue, but you're not having to put uh, sugar in your drink. Is that, is, is that your experience? For tea, it's very common, and it also includes just putting a lump of sugar in your mouth and just letting that hot tea melt it and have all those flavors in right on your tongue. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I also remember reading a, um, a book about Russia one time, and they actually put jam in their coffee and tea, which I thought, wow, well, that's interesting. How do you get the lumps of, how do you get the lumps of fruit down? <laughs> but... Uh, and then, and then, of course, you know about Indian chai and all of the, you know, the cardamom and um, the cinnamon. And uh, we put um, uh, a lot of these uh, like fennel seeds and, you know, all, all kinds of different spices that go into uh, chai. Every family has their own blend, right? Um, and then it's always with milk and water. Yeah, you don't just serve it by itself. So, um you know, everybody has their own drinks, right? Their own coffees and teas. Every culture does. It's amazing. I that remember. too, I think is, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say how evocative the idea of that individual chai recipe is in, in a given family, because that too is an appreciation of, of aromas and of the different spices and the way they can evoke things, just like maybe Proust's Madeleine did, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's an evocation, but through scent. 
<laughs> yeah. When when you're making chai, your entire kitchen will uh, have those scents in it. And it's, you know, um, when you're used to drinking or eating something and then you smell it in your environment, you're, um, uh, you know, you start salivating. <laughs> you're like, you know, you start craving it like, oh, when do I get to eat or drink that thing? So um, I love that thing about scent also. Scent is experienced through the nose, but did you also know that flavor of things is experienced through the nose? So for example, let's say that you're eating a candy that is strawberry. You can smell it, but you think that when you're tasting it, you're tasting the strawberry. No, it's coming in through your nose, which I, you know, that was another one of the things I found in the research that uh, I thought was fascinating. Flavor, go, it goes through the nose first. Um, some other things that, that I found out uh, about perfume in, <laughs> in the novel um, are that master perfumers have to memorize 3,000 scents in their nose, 3,000 scents. And so when they start designing perfume, they are designing in their heads. They're saying, okay, what if I take that tuberose and I just take like a 0.1 gram of that and I add it to 0.1 grams of cinnamon and then, you know, maybe this um, uh, ambergris, which is actually from the digestive product of a whale. <laughs> it's like one of the most expensive ingredients in perfume and, uh, and it's, you know, very prized. But, you know, they do all of that in their heads, and then they send the formula down to uh, a lab, like the kind that Radha in The Perfumist of Paris is working in, and then she uh, creates the uh, actual blend, sends it back to the master perfumer to see if that's really what they had in mind. Oh, my God, there's so much stuff that we can learn in research. <laughs> yeah, it almost sounds like they have to be chemists. Yeah, well, they are, and they are. Uh, the majority of master perfumers have a degree in chemistry, and uh, yes, they use chemistry all the time. You know, it's just like um, a chef. Chefs have to know chemistry as well. You know, what is uh, one ingredient going to do when it's mixed with another ingredient? So a lot of that, yeah, comes into play. Right. Uh, so, Alka, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the, well, basically just to look at the trajectory you've had with your novels, because we haven't had a chance to talk about the fact that the henna artist was a Reese Witherspoon pick, that it became a, a bestseller, and that it's in, what, 29 languages? Am I, am I right, or have I missed a few? Correct. Okay, so so you had this just amazing success with that first novel, which has continued into the next two. And so, is there anything about that journey that um, that really stuck with you? Because I'm sure you couldn't have anticipated that all of this would happen. No, I I could not have anticipated this at all. I had no idea that uh, it might turn into a full time career for me to write. And I'm currently working on novel number four. And then after that, I'll be on novel number five. Um, so I have, <laughs> um, I think that it's very difficult to predict what readers are going to be interested in and um, how people will react. So I think there's so much of this, Anita, that is completely out of our control, completely out of our control. Um, and that is one thing that I have had to get used to. There is no amount of work that I can do 
once the novel is out that is going to guarantee its success. Um, I can only do the best writing that I can do and uh, put my heart and soul into the messages that I want uh, the reader uh, to uh, absorb. And after that, it's, it's, it's whatever the universe wants it to be. Um, yeah, but it, it has been surprising and it's been pleasantly um, surprising to find out that now I have this coterie of very loyal readers who just want to know when the next book is coming out. And I'm like, I can't write fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, there's some magic dust involved, right? There's, there are all kinds of things. It, it's interesting how unpredictable what will happen to, to one's book is, whether it's yeah. going to sell like crazy or, or not, you know, it's uh, even the yeah. people who publish these books often don't know for sure. Yeah, and, and The Henna Artist has been optioned for um, a TV series by Netflix. So that is really exciting. That's not anything I could have predicted or made happen. Um, and uh, I'm just so excited that Frida Pinto wants to play Lakshmi and that it will become, uh, I think, uh, a an Indian Downton Abbey. At least that's what I've been told by producers. <laughs> so, interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, I so can definitely I, see that because you cover both the upper crust of society and you cover those who serve them. So I can definitely see it going back and forth between those yes. two, just like Downton Abbey did. Yeah, and lush and gorgeous and well-written and well-acted. Yes, we're all looking forward to that. <laughs> Is there a release date or not yet? No, we don't have a release date. Uh, I imagine these things happen on their own time. Anita, it's been so wonderful talking to you. Um, you, you know, it's, just, it's great to catch up to my mentor. You have been my mentor. You're the one who inspired me to write these books about India. I just, I cannot thank you enough for the inspiration that you have been in my life. Well, Alka, every teacher wants to work with a motivated student. And so you were my dream student because... I just want to cite the fact that, um, of course, your writing was beautiful at, from the outset, um, but you also showed so much persistence and uh, stick-to-itiveness, which I think is really part of the process of writing a novel, because for most people, it's a really long process. It's easy to get discouraged uh, because you have a, so much to learn to get that book fully realized. And um, it was such a gift to me to be able to see you go through that process and get there with so much joy and um, beauty in your work and so much success. So I have to Thanks, thank you Anita. for that. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. And I, I hope we will keep talking for years and years to come. Yay. Yay. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about our other episodes. Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment.